Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. What we are seeing unfold in Acts Acts chapter 6 and 7 is what was stated at the very beginning of the book in verse 8 of chapter 1. It was there that our Lord Jesus told his disciples that they would bear witness to him after they have received power from the Holy Spirit. They would be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is really the structure of the entire book of Acts. And as we come through 6 and 7 now, we are coming to the close of the bearing of witness in Jerusalem. The church is going to be distributed. It's going to be cast out into the wider region of Judea and Samaria. And that, beloved, will be a great blessing, even though it will come under persecution. Such is the great goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules in heaven for his people. He will turn their suffering, great persecution, into the blessing of the nations. And the church will keep expanding until, behold, it reaches Nina, Wisconsin. And the body and blood of Christ is borne witness to your soul that your sins have been forgiven and you are reconciled to God by his own son. Acts chapter 6, let us pray and then read verse 8 through 15. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask for your great help today, for we are in great need. We pray, Father, that not according to our merit, not according to our readiness or preparation, not according to our zeal, but according to your grace, that you would help us. Father, do indeed give to all those who prepared and those who prayed and and those who made ready. Give them their blessing and give them more. And give all of us who are poorly prepared abundant grace. Give us that same measure that you gave those who you hired in the last hour to work in your orchard. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that we would hear the voice of the master. Help our hearts, help our minds, help our wills by your Holy Spirit. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 6, beginning at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place 
and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. Beloved, I want to tell you about another martyr of the Church of Christ. Her name was Lady Jane Grey, and she was an ordinary Christian. And for that reason, she was invincible. She learned much, as you will see, from Stephen, so very much, who himself received much from Christ. Now, our dictionary says the word invincible means you cannot be defeated, you cannot be mastered, you cannot be overcome. That describes Lady Jane. The enemies of Christ could not defeat her. She was not, however, invincible against the executioner's axe. When he brought his axe down on her neck on February 12, 1554, outside the Tower of London, he ended her earthly life. She was not invincible against the temporary death of the body. But her invincibility was a different kind. She was invincible against unbelief. She was invincible against earthly powers, invincible against the vainglory of this world, invincible against the false prophets who in her day controlled the church and who rejected the sufficiency of Christ's blood for salvation. In the early days of the English Reformation, Lady Jane became Queen of England for nine days. She did not want to be queen. When she learned that she had become queen, she immediately fainted. She was 16. Her father and his friends secretly worked behind the scenes to put her, put her on the throne, and it did not last. Her cousin, her cousin Mary Tudor, marched into London with her army, and the men who swore to defend Lady Jane with their lives quickly switched sides. Lady Jane was arrested, thrown into prison, eight months later executed. Executed for her Protestant faith in the exclusive sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ to give a whole and complete salvation to the sinner. Now, before she was executed, Queen Mary, the Roman Catholic, wanted to give her cousin, Lady Jane, a chance to renounce her convictions about church authority, about the sacraments, about salvation. Mary sent her best chaplain to the prison to convince Lady Jane she was wrong. Lady Jane refused to change her mind. In one exchange, she said to the chaplain, arguing very skillfully always, she was very learned for a young girl, knowing her Greek and her Hebrew and her Latin and her Bible. They didn't have Netflix yet. She argued sweetly and skillfully with the chaplain. At one point, he said to her, Do you not know good works are necessary for salvation and faith alone cannot justify the soul before God? She replied, 
Good works are done to show that a Christian follows their master, Christ. But when we have done all the good we can, we are yet unprofitable servants. Faith only in Christ's blood saveth, she said. And it went on and around and around. On February 12th, when the hour of execution came, Lady Jane was brought outside before the crowd. The crowd, she climbed up on the platform and announced to the crowd, I do look to be saved by no other means but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. And then she recited from memory Psalm 51. She went over and forgave the executioner. She put on her own blindfold. She got down on her knees and walked on her knees to the stump where she laid her face in the groove of the stump and said her last words, Lord, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Lady Jane Grey used almost the same words that Stephen used 1,500 years earlier in Jerusalem when he was publicly put to death. As heavy stones were flying towards Stephen's head, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen's death is recorded at the very end of Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 59. Stephen, of course, was using the words that Christ spoke himself from the cross. Stephen had learned from the Savior how to live and how to die. And 1,500 years later, Stephen had become a teacher of a teenage girl, how to live and how to die for Christ. Beloved, these were invincible Christians because they were ordinary Christians. Because Christ who dwells in every Christian believer, is himself invincible. Jane, a teenager, Stephen, a deacon. The enemies of Jesus Christ could not, verse 10 of our text says, could not withstand the grace and the power and the wisdom and the spirit of God who was within Stephen. Now, that language from verse 10 of chapter 6, they could not withstand. It is a statement describing the enemies of Christ. They could not withstand the power of the risen Christ at work in the earthly servants of Christ. But let us understand that phrase from verse 10, they could not withstand does not mean the enemies of Christ were won over and became servants of Christ. When you read this chapter for the first time, you're certain that that's what's going to be said in verse 11. Because verse 10 just said they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit of Stephen. Well, surely there must be a revival about to happen in verse 11, and they're all going to ask Stephen how to become Christians. Not at all. That did not happen. 
the text reveals that the enemies of Christ went from bad to worse the the longer Stephen endured in his invincible faithfulness. They became harder, the text says. They started lying and they started cheating to ruin Stephen, eventually putting him to death. Now that phrase, they could not withstand, does not mean the enemies of Christ were converted. It means rather they could not defeat the invincible spiritual strength of the servant of Christ because Stephen is an ordinary Christian. Their arguments could not defeat the faith of Stephen. Their arguments could not defeat the doctrine of Stephen. Their arguments could not shatter Stephen's arguments before his own heart, in his own conscience, and win him over to their unbelief, to their errors, to their pride, to their opposition against the gospel of Christ. They couldn't do it. The phrase, they could not withstand means the earthly servant of Christ kept kept in the power of the risen Christ was not prevented from reaching the goal to which the servant of Christ was advancing to finish his life faithful to the truth of Christ. Every child of God, born of the Spirit, ruled by the risen Christ, will finish their advancement. In other words, verse 10 is saying that the enemies of Christ cannot withstand the servants of Christ as those very same servants trample over the gates of hell and march triumphantly to the grave and right on into the presence of Christ in heaven. So in our text, Stephen is being presented to us as a great defender of the faith which is somewhat odd, isn't it? We thought after meeting Stephen in the first seven verses, the next thing we would see him doing is walking about with a clipboard, making sure the widows had the right distribution of soup and bread because he's one of the seven new deacons. We never see Stephen actually serving tables. Instead, he immediately emerges like a prophet in the Israel of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And that's going to become quite significant in the next chapter when he makes this absolutely glorious speech. Stephen is revealed as a great defender of the faith. But he is a great defender of the faith not because he wins many people to Christ, I hope you could reconcile those two. And I'm going to work hard to help you reconcile those two so that you are guarded and defended against all kinds of trickery that sometimes creeps in at the edges of the church. Stephen was a great defender of the faith, not because he wins many people to Christ. He is a great defender of the faith because he himself cannot be vanquished by the enemies of Christ. And you, beloved, share in all the things that Stephen shares in. 
in making him this invincible defender of the faith. You share in the grace and the power and the wisdom and the spirit. In fact, Paul prays in Ephesians 3 for all the saints that you would be given the power of the spirit to abound in grace, to be strong in the wisdom of God and to be filled with the fullness of God. Why does Paul pray such wonderful things? Because you're ordinary Christians. And all that Christ has belongs to the ordinary Christian. As sure as Christ gave himself to Stephen, he gives himself from heaven to all believers. We will not do the great wonders and signs which Stephen did, for we are outside of the apostolic age, the the age of the church's foundation. We are now being built on that foundation. So we will not do the great signs and wonders of Stephen, but the enemies of Christ will not be able to withstand our advance to the glory of heaven. We will prevail against Satan in the power of Christ. Now, I want you to look at something. Look at the ferocious assault the devil brought against Stephen. Stephen had just been appointed one of the first deacons of the Christian church in Jerusalem, perhaps his first week on the job. And by his name, Stephanos, we can tell that he was a Greek-speaking Jew who had been converted to Christ. Now those in verse 9 who rise up to dispute against him are other Greek-speaking Jews who had not been converted to Christ. So understand, Satan is stirring up those who are most like Stephen culturally to become the ones who oppose him theologically. This would be like all of my uncles and cousins who fish in the north woods of Wisconsin making fun of me for being a Christian. I grew up with those guys. I talk like those guys. I fish as badly as those guys. Satan would send such companions of cultural proximity to oppose me theologically. What a test. What a ferocious beast he is. That's what he's doing to Stephen. Satan then in verse 11 had these enemies of Christ secretly instigate other men against Stephen. And then, according to verse 12, Satan has Stephen arrested and thrown into prison. Then verse 13 says, Satan has false witnesses come forward to twist and pervert Stephen's teaching. So here's the picture. Stephen is isolated from the church. He's in jail. He is opposed by his own people, Greek-speaking Jews of Jerusalem, He is targeted by destruction by the authorities. The gates of hell are closing in around the Lord's servant. But in the power of the risen Christ, Stephen will remain invincible. He will not give up nor forfeit any doctrine of Christ. He does not say to himself something like this. I brought my best arguments. I brought my strongest convictions, and these guys I grew up with still hate me. 
Something must be wrong with me. I think I'll soften my convictions about Christ. I think I'll loosen up until the enemies of Christ become my friends. Stephen never goes there. His faith is not defeated by the unbelief of Christ's enemies because he's an ordinary Christian, because he has the Holy Spirit, because he is united to the risen Christ in power. Now, beloved, this is where we must learn an important lesson about defending the faith. It will often be God's will for us to defend the faith before people who will remain unregenerate. This is a hugely important lesson. And it would save churches huge bills on electricity. What does it mean to be unregenerate? Well, let me give you two verses of Scripture that explain it perfectly. Romans 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That verse, Romans 8, 7, explains the enemies of Christ in Acts 6. The unregenerate cannot overcome their own hostility toward Christ when the best arguments are coming out of Stephen's mouth. In fact, Stephen cannot overcome their hostility. The Holy Spirit must visit them and dwell with them to overcome this hostility toward Christ. Stephen is not defending the faith here because he has been assured he will overcome the hostility of his neighbors, his schoolmate pals, against Christ. No, he is defending the faith because his own hostility has been overcome by the Spirit. He defends the faith for love of Christ, even if no one believes. And this spirit-wrought motivation of love of Christ is indeed the secret to Stephen's invincibility. Now, the other verse that explains what it is to be unregenerate is 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The unregenerate are not able to understand even the best arguments for the truth of Christ. The argument isn't going to get better by plugging it in, by putting it in skinny jeans, by having it sing rock songs on Sunday morning. It's not going to be finally an argument that overcomes the hostility of the unregenerate. Remember, Stephen's arguments were the best. And what was Stephen's argument? Well, we get a little glimpse of it in chapter 6 here. He is saying something against the temple that his enemies are twisting. He's saying something against the law of Moses, which his enemies are twisting. What is Stephen's argument? Well, in a nutshell, Stephen's argument 
is the argument of the cross. By the death of Jesus Christ, the earthly temple in Jerusalem is no longer the place where, where sinners meet with God. The death of Jesus Christ testifies that no man could have ever hoped to be reconciled to God through the law of Moses. His message is the message of the cross, which Paul, in fact, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, that message of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. The very two things that are hanging heavily on Stephen's life in this book. That's what his message was. Beloved, that must be your message. You know that the message of the cross is strong in you, and I don't mean to sound like you know, a Jedi. You know the message of the cross is strong in you when you can say, indeed, oh, that that old temple in Jerusalem, I don't need to see it. Yeah, if you got a free plane ticket, I might. But I don't need to go see that. That's not the place where men meet with God. The cross is the power and the wisdom of God. So Stephen's message was excellent, perfect, spirit-wrought, spirit-delivered. The spirit may bring all that right to somebody's doorstep, but if the spirit does not come into the house of the soul, they will reject the best arguments because they're unregenerate. So the unregenerate are those who have not yet experienced the supernatural work of God in their own soul by the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty convinced I was among that number until I was 18 or 19 years old. For the unregenerate, God has not yet made himself known to them. They, of course, may know facts about the Christian faith, but they have not yet forsaken sin. They have not yet come to love Jesus Christ. They have not yet perceived his glory and his beauty as a savior crucified for sinners, as a God raised in power for sinners. In the unregenerate, God is still hidden from their soul. The late theologian R.B. Kuyper said, so great is the depravity of unregenerate man that although there is nothing that he needs more than the gospel, there is nothing that he desires less than the gospel. That's the condition of the unregenerate heart, not having any desire for that which they most need. But dead desire is not the full picture of the misery that binds the unregenerate. There is also the misery of dead ability. As Luther said of the unregenerate, just as no man can give himself faith, neither can he take away his unbelief. That's the condition of the unregenerate. They can't even take away their own unbelief. Only a visitation by the Spirit of God gives gospel desire and removes unbelief. The gospel may be a religious fact to the unregenerate, but it will never be a fire, never, unless the Spirit of God comes. And so, beloved, we pray, come, Holy Spirit. As a father, my prayers for my children 
as I've gotten older, have become simpler. Lord, give your spirit to my children. Give them the birth of your spirit. Take them from their being dead in sin and quicken them and make them alive. Because, Lord, I can give them the best Christian education. I can give them even the best father, which I am failing to do. But I cannot regenerate them. I must bring them to Jesus Christ and ask him to bless them. So let's bring this back to Stephen's defending of the faith. Stephen does not give any authority or primacy to unregenerate men and his task as an evangelist. He does not reduce his doctrine of Christ so unregenerate men will finally be able to accept it. No, Stephen understands the need for regeneration. He knows his Bible. He knows that in Deuteronomy 29, the Lord said to that generation that he brought out of Egypt, he said, I have not yet given you a circumcised heart. But then he says in chapter 30, I will give you a circumcised heart. Stephen understands the need for regeneration. And he understands the spiritual deadness of the unregenerate. In fact, Stephen will say in the next chapter to the very Jewish leaders who have arrested him and who are now putting him under interrogation, he will say to them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Acts 7.51 But let us understand, the condition of sinful men does not change Stephen's defense of the faith. Because Stephen's defense is first for Christ himself, to the honor of Christ, to the glory of Christ, to say all of the glorious particularity of who the Son of God is and what he has done in his mediation. It is for his honor to describe him rightly. Then Stephen's defense of the faith is then for himself, secondly. It is a reward to the soul of the believer to be able to defend the faith. And it is a continuing reward that expands and grows as we defend the faith under the tutelage of the Spirit our own soul becomes a bulwark against all the lies of men and the devil. And then thirdly, his invincibility in the face of opposition is for the unbeliever. Should perhaps the Lord be pleased to let them be born of the Spirit? So understand In the face of the strongest opposition, Stephen has a testimony that Christ is with him. Because the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, when you suffer and you have joy, it is because your soul, your spirit knows that 
you are walking in my footsteps and I am holding you up, not under a a trail of ease, but under a trail of thorns. Now, we must, as we get around to bringing this to an end, we must give proper credit to the invincibility of Stephen. How is it that he is so invincible in the face of opposition? If we look just at today's text in Acts 6, we learn that Stephen is full of grace and power. He is mighty in wisdom and the Spirit of God. So for starters, we must understand all of those fruits that make him invincible, which belong to every ordinary Christian, all of those fruits are fruits of the Holy Spirit, which has been poured out upon all the church of God. But Luke, who wrote this book, this is Luke's sequel. He wrote another book first that bears his namesake, the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the author, wants us, yes, to see that these are fruits of the Spirit. But Luke also would have us see something more broadly. And this something may be a key reason that the Spirit moved Luke to include this event in the book of Acts, Stephen's life and martyrdom. And what I am referring to are all the ways in which Stephen's life becomes an imitation so close and tight to the life of Jesus Christ. Just listen to these. Both Jesus and Stephen were arrested and brought before the same authorities in Jerusalem. This is the same council that 40, 60 days earlier condemned Jesus Christ. Number two, both Jesus and Stephen were attacked by false witnesses during their trial. Number three, both Jesus and Stephen were accused of speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses. Both Jesus and Stephen were illuminated by the glory of heaven, testifying to God's being pleased with them. Both Jesus and Stephen were put to death by the authorities of Jerusalem. Both Jesus and Stephen verbally committed their spirit to the Lord at the hour of their death. And both Jesus and Stephen, in the moments before death, prayed for the forgiveness of their murderers. Jesus prayed to the Father, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Stephen Stephen prayed not to the Father, but to the Son, saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He prayed that as rocks were buffeting his body. Beloved, what this means is that the Lord, the Spirit, the author of Scripture behind the human author, wants us to see that the fruits of the Spirit are the fruits of the Son. It is Christ who is sharing his invincible life from the right hand of his Father in heaven with his church through his Spirit. Beloved, Christ is dwelling in his saints, just as he promised in John 14. I will go away, he said, 
but I will come back to you, and me and my Father will make our abode with you. Stephen's life is imitating Christ in its suffering and its invincibility because he is now living in Christ. It is I who live no longer, but Christ in me, the hope of glory. Beloved, we learn from what Stephen says about forgiveness in the moment of his death that proclaiming forgiveness in the hour of our death, even as the world is casting us out, this too is the last stage in our invincibility against unbelief against the vainglory of the world, against the rules of the world to hate and be hated. Remember Paul said that about himself? When we were unregenerate, Paul says, we both hated and were hated. It was the way of the world. Proclaiming forgiveness, just as our Savior did, to those who take what the world thinks is most precious to us, our, our breath, Proclaiming forgiveness to them in Jesus' name is the last stage of our invincibility against unbelief. It testifies the very heart of the cross, doesn't it? That the sin of sinners does not defeat the grace of the gospel. That the sin of the unregenerate does not defeat the grace of the gospel. Where sin increased Grace abounded all the more, Paul says in Romans 5. So just like his Savior, not even the violence and hatred of men could defeat Stephen, so filled was he with the power of the risen Christ. And this was all true also of Stephen's disciple, a disciple from a great distance of years, Lady Jane Grey. When Lady Jane Grey came to die, she went over and, as you heard, forgave the executioner who would separate her head from her body. When she came to die, she prayed that God would forgive Queen Mary Tudor, who became known as Bloody Mary for the number of Protestants she put to death. When she came to die, she went and prayed for the chaplain who came in the guise of the devil to try to win her away from the sufficiency of Christ's blood. And when Lady Jane came to die, while still in prison, she wrote a letter of forgiveness to her father, her earthly father, Henry Gray, who got her into this mess. She forgave him and said, Father, Although it hath pleased God to hasten my death by you, by whom my life should rather have been lengthened, yet I can so patiently take it that I yield God more hearty thanks for shortening my woeful days than if all the world had been given into my possession with life lengthened at my own will. May his will be done. Even her father's sin she came to see as something that drew her near to her repose upon God's bosom, that her life was in his hands and he could do with it as he pleased. 
because he had already given to her his beloved son. Beloved, we are all ordinary Christians. If we are no longer among the unregenerate, the Spirit of God has visited us and he has made us invincible. Nothing can defeat us. Unbelief cannot defeat us. Vainglory of the world cannot defeat us. But if we have not forsaken our sin, if we have not come to Christ, if the beauty and glory of the crucified Son is not the most compelling treasure of our soul, we are unregenerate. We are dead in our sins. We may have religious facts, but we are still needing the Spirit of God. Beloved, you can be baptized. You can even have taken from the Lord's Supper. You can be a member of a church like this and still be unregenerate. Has the Spirit testified to your spirit that you, outside of Christ, are a condemned sinner in danger of his eternal wrath and that only his son is the safety, is the love, is the destiny, is the truth and the way and the life? Has the Spirit testified to your spirit, that glorious gospel, and as he dragged you and brought you and subdued you to that Savior? If he has not, ask him. I am always asking him for you. And I even asked him that he would do so today. Beloved, remember this. One of the obstinate unbelieving, violent men who was at this meeting who could not withstand Stephen was Saul. Saul was in the room where it happened. And the Lord heard Stephen's prayer because he hears the prayer of his son, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Beloved, he answers that prayer, and he regenerates the dead. And they flee from sin, and they come to Christ. Let us pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, O Lord, for thinking small thoughts about the duty and the joy of defending the cross. Forgive us, Father, for every time that we have weakened it and hid it, and we have kept it away from the central place of our lives and speech and worship. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have been ashamed of its power and wisdom because we have been drawn away to what the world calls wisdom and power. For the sake of your son's blood, forgive us these many sins, Lord. And Father, we pray by the merits of Christ's blood and righteousness that it would please you to make alive the dead, 
even here today, even this month, even in Nina. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.